Welcome to Harvest to Pour, the business of beverages, with your host, Matthew Schiff. This is the podcast for all of those who are involved in the agriculture all the way to the distribution of beverages. And now your host, Matthew Shipp. Hello and welcome to Harvest of Poor. I'm your host, Matthew Shipp, and today I am here with Demetrius Kane of Nobleton's Distilling House. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Good. Okay. So Demetrius just had a grand opening and apparently it was a really good one because he's pretty much almost lost his voice. So we're going to power through here and, and ask him some questions before the rest of his voice gives out. So go ahead and let us know about Nobles and Stilling as how this came to be. I know you have a really storied history here. I'm sitting in his tasting room and there's these murals that kind of denote his family family's journey through, through the United States and how he's ended up here. But before we get into that, again, let us know what inspired you or what's, I guess, throughout your families to keep this going or how did it all start? Yeah. So, so you're kind of talking about the murals that are on the walls. So my family's journey started in 1824. So it goes back to 1824 where we kind of, the first family came to be, it was an estate distiller. So in 1824, we began paying taxes uh, to the federal government as a farm tax based around the production of whiskey. And that was here in the state of Missouri. 1824, we left the state, moved west, headed to Oregon, where we continued the practice. It was a, it was a practice that we had actually started in England prior to coming to the United States, but that's a history that goes back to the 1500s where our yeast comes from. So we use one strain of family yeast and passed down in you know, every family distiller ever since the beginning has inherited that yeast, and we use that same yeast today. One yeast strain, we don't differentiate between different mash bills, one yeast strain. And so that's kind of where it started. Fast forward to my childhood. As we state, everything's in theory after prohibition. And so my childhood, I was, you know, told about all this history and all this lineage, and I inherited all of the books and manuals and the farming knowledge and everything there. And so, so I continued, you know, in theory, studying it and fast forward until my mid twenties, my wife and I here on our farm, we'd bought a few farms here in Missouri and we decided, you know, it was time to kind of chase after the family lineage. And so that's kind of what started it. So. Okay. So you, you bought the farm and this is, and then you continued what your family had done is with the distilling on the farm. We didn't do anything until we legally acquired our license. And so we started with the farming side of it. And so all the grain that we use is heirloom varietals that I inherited. Uh So we use sweet corn, wheat, barley, and rye that are all family heirloom varietals. So my family's been using these grain species, you know, for as long as my family's written history. Mm-hmm. The corn we know was added in sometime in the 15 to 1700s in that time because that's when my family immigrated to the United States. And corn was not something that was prevalent in Scotland or England. So we only we know that that's when that came in. But beyond that, the rye, wheat, and barley, we've always utilized it for you know farming and agriculture. <clears throat> so we still do the same today. So those grain species, the heirloom, they're non-GMO. We propagate. We manage silo, store, grain, grind, mill, everything from the moment it goes in the soil till it comes out and then it becomes whiskey. And so we, we manage the entire process. That's, that's wild. I, very few. I don't think I've ever heard of anybody else who does all of it all in one, 
all in house that way. What are as you once you got your license, as you say, to to start creating your whiskey? What were some of the early challenges you had to overcome? Well, one of the biggest things is you know as a young producer, the issue is you know to source or not to source. You know, do you buy somebody else's juice? Or do you make your own and just wait? And so we made the decision to make our own and wait because, you know, what's what's the point of inheriting nine nine generations of mash pills and all of the knowledge of nine generations to just buy somebody else's stuff and tell a good story? And so we put up a lot of whiskey and then we made rum. And so my family, the other side of my family has a Cajun root from Louisiana. And so we saw a family farm in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And the family farm in Louisiana, we grew all the sugar cane there. We made sugar canes. Have you ever been? Have you ever had like a French West Indies agricole style rum? So it's made from sugar cane juice opposed to molasses. Okay. And so my family made a lot of that, and so we would fresh press the cane juice in Louisiana, and then transport it up here under you know under refrigeration. And then begin the fermentation process here. Okay. And so, how many years does it t- take to get the uh, that piece started? All right. So you so you you pressed the sugarcane to create some rum. Yep. So we we pressed it into sugarcane juice. Okay. Which is for anybody that's kind of been in the health food industry or anything like that. You take you know fruits and vegetables and stuff, and you run through a processor and it squeezes the juice and the, the liquid and the water, all that stuff out. And it essentially turns it into like a green, milky liquid. And it's very sweet. It's delicious to drink. And so we would ferment it into low wines, distill it, make rum out of it, age it. Some of it would age and some of it would just drink straight, you know, just as a you know, clear rum. And so we did that because rum is an easier product to produce and sell young. And then two years, so while we were doing that, we were putting up lots of whiskey, knowing that that was the goal in the long run, but we knew we had to wait until our whiskey was finished. So fast forward seven years, we're just heading into our ninth year of business. So seven years in, so two years ago, we launched our first whiskey, Planners Whiskey. And so that's, so in the meantime, before that was ready, we made rum, sold rum, and then just this year, we started pulling back from the rum. Okay. So we kind of ceased operations with rum production. We still bulk distill it for other people. Um, but primarily, it's just whiskey for us. So that kind of the rum production helps you survive up to the Correct. point that you can start marketing your whiskey. Exactly. Okay. That's great planning. All right. Is there, was there any other besides getting all this planning and finally, you know, releasing that whiskey? Were there any challenges behind or unknowns that you had to deal with in, in the meantime? Well, I think anybody that's a small business owner, you know, will never forget 20. You know, we, we nearly threw in the towel. You know, 2020 hit us like a ton of bricks, like it did many, many other people. Because, you know, I think it was March 20th. It was the first day I got a call to return orders. And we had distributors trying to return product to us. And we were like, we can't afford to, we can't afford to buy it back. You know, you've already purchased it. And, you know, we just didn't quite understand the scale of everything that would happen. So that was a huge hurdle to overcome. We we had a buyout offer, nearly took it, because there's some people in the industry that I've worked with for many years that kind of knew what we had been working on for many years. And so they came in and 
you know, offered to buy or, you know, buy everything. And, um, later they were bought out by even larger conglomerates. And so I was glad we didn't sell, but yeah, we, we nearly threw in the towel and only because of my wife's stubbornness, uh, to not let me give up. Um, we are here today because if it was me, I would have thrown in the towel in 2020. Oh, but wow. My, yeah. Right. My wife's a, She's like, you're not going to throw away your family lineage that fast. No, yeah. So, well, it didn't help because we were so we were offered at the time we were offered a decent six figure, I guess seven because we got we were offered about eight million to buy out. Wow. And at the time, my wife and I sat down, and I didn't tell her the dollar amount, but she's like, "What would we do if you take this?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, if we quit, we'll live on a little bit of the money." And then we'll save all the rest for when the non-compete runs out. Or we'll do it again. <laughs> and she was like, then hell no, I'm not doing this again. She was like, we're going to stay the course. So ended up working overnights for Amazon in little odd jobs, farming and distilling by day, working for any company to hire anybody at night. And did that just to you know pay the mortgage and keep the lights on. Keep the lights on. Wow, that's so. amazing dedication to this. Yeah, you have nine generations of in- of just knowledge, just institutional knowledge on this. I mean, where do you start with all of that? And, you know, just to bring your whiskey to what it is now, I mean, you have all this, you know, I'm sure there was successes and failures within that nine generations. How oh, yeah. do you sort through it all? Well, so one of the benefits is, is that, you know, I was trained, my grandfather trained me and there's only ever been one family distiller at the time. And so there's successive knowledge where it's, you know, every distiller is tasked with keeping the same mash bills. So every single distiller has their own mash bill. I have my own mash bill that is different than every distiller before me. And it's my job to continue to produce all of theirs. And my grandfather had to assess my skill level and my knowledge base before he handed it over to me. When he gave it over to me, from that point forward, he never gave me advice. Oh. But from that point forward, I was the family distiller. He was just a helping hand. And so there was, there was a, there was a, there was a very long period of apprenticeship. Yeah. And then once he handed it over, he in essence became like, you know, an employee of. And so he let me make mistakes, let me learn from them. Mm-hmm. And it forced me into owning, you know, owning those mistakes and learning from the process. Yeah. So it sort of created a consistency <laughs> with, with your mash builds, but yeah. by letting you kind of go on your own and make your own mistakes, you're evolving that build and you're, you're allowed to innovate. So you're just not saying consistency for consistency's sake. Correct. But you are maintaining the backbone of, of nine generations of mash bills and building yeah. whiskey. And we also, you know, one of the benefits that we have is that I've had the luxury of being able to try those original mash bills that were produced by the original producers oh, really? during their lifetime. And so that is an added component. We feel incredibly honored to have you know to have yeah. you know, and that's not the case for most no definitely that is that is that is a great story that's very unique so 
I want to get into kind of that harvest a poor journey that's the podcast is named after, and especially in your case, and you've already talked a lot about the harvest already, but I do want to dig into it more. Then I want to talk about how, you know, you make your whiskey uniquely. There's every, there's so many crafts out here that do similar bourbons and whiskeys, but they're all uniquely there. They all are subtly different. I want to kind of get into how you are, are uniquely yours. And then we'll get into a final, the pour, you know, what's your pour for your clients? How do you let people know about who you are? What makes them come back? What is, what is it more than whiskey that keeps them come back? So let's just step back here and go into the harvest. And you talked about you, you grow all your own grain. Everything that is in your whiskey is grown off the land and, and grown by you. Is that correct? Correct. All right. What are some, you know, I think when we talked earlier, you, you mentioned that you have different plots all over the United States and even in Canada as well. Yeah. So we lease 15,000 acres in Saskatchewan. Uh, we don't own it, but we have a strong family tie up there. So we lease land from them. They own the land and we do the management of the property. So we have farming partners that manage that for us. And so those farmers, I come up every year, work with them in the springtime to get planting. We look, we go through and do like the soil mitigation studies. We look at, you know, the, you know, how fertile the soil is. We, so we don't practice traditional farming. We practice what's called regenerative agriculture. Mm -hmm. So we do a mixture of cover cropping, no-till seed drilling, mm -hmm. and then grazing. So we don't, so if I have a hundred acres. I don't plant that entire 100 acres in, for instance, corn this year. I would plant 25 acres in corn. Mm -hmm. I would do cover cropping on 25, and I would do cover cropping and intensive grazing, rotational grazing for cattle on the other 50. Mm -hmm. And so in the following year, I would then do 25 on a different plot, mm -hmm. and I'd move the cattle and the cover crop so that the soil has time to regenerate that the cattle have the ability to eat the cover crop, also fertilizing the soil and, you know, and it allows that topsoil to grow and, and develop. So instead of having, you know, really shallow, you know, water retention uh, sections, layers within the soil, it allows, you know, so even in the midst of droughts like this past year, uh, we had a major drought here in Missouri. And we still were producing 185 bushels of sweet corn, which is an heirloom sweet corn that my family has always grown. And the GMOs right on the on the farm next to us were barely getting more than 10. Mm -hmm. You know, and my corn doesn't produce 10, 15 ears per stock, you know, or five or six stocks of heads per stock. It's it's two ears per, per stock. Years, this wow. is heirloom. You know, so heirlooms don't do that. No. And so to still be able to pull one eighty five in a bad year was a was a huge huge accomplishment for us mm -hmm. and so that, and that's what we do with every type of you know whatever we're growing we take it from the same route so not only do we grow corn wheat barley rye we also raise cattle which takes care of our spent grains mm -hmm. and also helps fertilize our fields naturally and and then we spend a lot of time I'm, I'm a water nerd so i spend a lot of time looking at nutrients and the mycelium mats and all of these things in the soil in order to ensure that the prop that the plants have the proper nutrients to uptake the water yeah. and the nutrients in the soil. Because, you know, if anything's out of balance, just like our own bodies, anything's out of balance in our, in our chemical structure and mm. our nutrients and all these things, you can't properly uptake the stuff you, 
And so we look at it from the same perspective with plants and animals. That's great. I've, I've been listening to more of regenerative agriculture, and it's really a, a walking back of, of using a very old and traditional well-tested methods. And you were talking about the soil biome, which is growing and growing in popularity. There's when I was do, doing research and leaving research, this the whole soil uh, sciences was really picking up. Um, they're really rediscovering, in fact, when restudying so- soil biomes and the communication that happens between them. But yeah, and as you said, the drought was a, drought is the biggest one. In fact, it almost works as like a from what I what I remember reading is it works like a natural pesticide almost. Yeah. You have the pressure, the water pressure, the trigger pressure in the plant that's so high because the plant is so healthy that certain insects will not try to eat, eat on it because the pressure of the water coming into them, remember the size of an insect is very small, and it's like biting into a fire hose, and they will not uh, um, eat it. They'll go find a weaker plant to do, do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's fascinating because we, you know, the other thing is too is, you know, once you start cultivating, instead of using pesticides to get rid of the, the bugs, you, you end up developing an ecosystem mm-hmm. that, you know, it's like, okay, so this year we have a bad, you know, we have, xyz beetle or you know fly or whatever comes through the cornfields and they mm-hmm. well the next year you're going to have a increase in their predator mm-hmm. and so over time you know we've been doing this for over 18 years on our farms you know you begin to see the reestablishment of an ecosystem mm-hmm. where you don't have imbalances now yes we lose a little bit more corn to pests mm-hmm. But I'm also not spraying it with something yeah. that will be that could get into my whiskey. Mm-hmm. Also, it's like I'm very comfortable to take ears of corn from my field and throw them on my grill at night without having to wash them. That's nice because there's yeah. nothing on it. Nothing to wash off. And that's kind of how we look at everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you know the flour we make to make the bread at home is the same flour that we the same wheat mm-hmm. that we use to make whiskey, and so. You know, that's, that's kind of like our entire like guiding principle is like, you know, use super high quality ingredients that have been passed down through generations and employ them in such a way that the flavor and the uniqueness of them stands out. And I want to get into the benefits here in a second of growing your own, harvesting your own and using regenerative technologies. Now, you have a lot of different plots of land, so I'm assuming communication is paramount. And and from so how do you, I mean, you're not the one out there tilling, or not tilling, but you're not that one out there planting constantly and being all, all places at once within the degree. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I'm assuming as this business grows, <sighs> that's going to happen less and less. So how do you handle the communication between all of this and how is important, how important is it to you? Well, so we... I've never really been a big fan of the employee employer method of, of businesses. I, I tend to fall more down the line of partners and partners. So we have farming partners who help me operate and manage our farming and I help them with logistics and storage. So I go out and I can, you know, I've, I help plant, I help harvest, I help, you know, truck the corn back and forth, wheat and barley back to our, grain elevators and all this. But what we do is instead of employing them by being an employee, most of the time they're the ones that own the land. And what we do is we come in and help them with the 
regenerative agriculture side. So we lease the property from them and we pay them a, a greater return per acre than what the market can give them. And so we buy, so we, we buy their support by helping them become more successful as a farm. Because at the end of the day, my goal, you know, apart from making whiskey and, you know, providing a good living for my wife and all of our kids, um, my greatest mission is to save farms. I believe that we need more American small farmers. We don't need fewer American farmers and big corporations. We need more small farmers because the more diverse that landscape is, the more unique solutions can be found when there's a problem. Um, because there, like with agriculture, there isn't a one-size-fits-all. A lot of times, it's, you, know, you, can, you can grow really, really good things on this side of the hill this way. Mm-hmm. But on the other side of the valley, else it's a different way. Yeah. But knowing how that works by working on the land and seeing the land, like the solution shouldn't always be let's spray it with chemicals, hit it with a whole bunch of fertilizer, and see how it goes. Yeah. Because it's like eventually those chemicals are going to wash off that hillside of the first rain. Mm-hmm. And then the people living downstream – now they get to deal with the side effects. Yeah, yeah. A lot of those chemicals so. are petroleum based, so that's another problem as well. All right. So another, my other question was, how does this growing your own grain, sourcing your own grain, by growing and controlling all of this, how does it affect your costs, your cost of production? Tremendously. Tremendously. Makes it a lot easier to manage. Does it? Because for us, it, it becomes. You know, we, we are the beginning and the end, you know, right up until truck picks it up at the back door. That's the last, like, and some of the trucks that pull up and pick, pick up our stuff here, we own. So sometimes we own the trucks that do our own. So it, it just depends. Uh, but, it, but it helps a lot because it keeps costs a lot lower. You have a lot, lot less fingers in the pot. And it allows us more freedom to produce better quality products. Okay. Now we're getting into the quality. Good. Great segue. Thank you. So you, how does, you know, the grain and all the product you produce that you put into your whiskey, how does, do you believe or do you know, how does that elevate? What does that change in, um, in your, in your, in product? So one of the big things that, you know, so one thing to just kind of step you back through history for a second mm-hmm. is if you look back through history, the adoption of genetically modified ingredient, you know, a lot of people go down the route of, Oh, they're genetically modifying it to, you know, and they, they're, they're programming, trying, you know, there can all be all these conspiracies about it. The biggest thing that when you really break it down, there's not a single thing that hasn't been modified in some way by genetics. When I go out in the field as a farmer and I'm looking at the corn stalks that are better than others, I'm going to be selecting years of those to propagate in the future. Yep. So that right there is genetic modification through natural selection. Yes. I'm selecting it based upon the, my goal. Mm-hmm. Now, the benefit of using heirloom grains is that by utilizing heirloom grains, I'm not standing out there trying to look at it for disease resistance. I'm not always sitting out there looking at it for, you know, pest control or drought resistance. Or I'm looking at the soil for my drought resistance. I'm looking at the plant for flavor. And so with u- utilizing those heirloom grains, I'm checking for how well did it grow? You know, how well did it produce its, you know, the seeds, the corn, the wheat, the barley, whatever. What is the sugar content? How quickly did it harvest and mature? But how does it taste? Because to me, 
taste is paramount. And that's how grain used to be grown. Yeah. You used to look at the taste, the quality of food. You know, it's like if you take an heirloom tomato and you put it next to a store-bought tomato, that heirloom tomato might not look pretty. But there is nothing better than an heirloom tomato on a hot summer day. Like, like you give me a caprese salad, heirloom tomatoes, it's like, you know, you can't beat that on a hot day. No, no. And that's kind of how I view it is. So for us, the quality comes through with very little, like, obviously it's a ton of effort on the farming and all the stuff. But it's like, we take all the effort on the front end mm-hmm. so that when we get to the part of making the whiskey, it's very easy to make whiskey that has a unique flavor and a robust that you normally don't find because we're not using just the common grains. Mm-hmm. We're using ones that we've cultivated for 200 years. So you are, a, you are literally in control of affecting how your whiskey tastes all the way from grain to pork, where most people get a grain and whatever variety they have, they have from yep. the farmer. That is, that is cool. It's usually really cost-based. Uh, yeah. And that's, so a lot of people don't understand, like, fun little factoid is that modern bourbon is not what it was before Prohibition. 51% corn came after World War II because it was an over-excess of corn. Mm-hmm. And so the federal government legislated it in order to subsidize. I'm from Same the government. With, I'm here to help. <laughs> Same with new oak barrels. Those are due to ammo crates, I believe. And it was because they had too many staves. So that's where the new 53-gallon, new charred oak 53-gallon barrel came from, I believe. And, you know, somebody corrects me, and they're like, nope, that's wrong. But where, 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 I believe were they that before? was after World War II. Because they were ammo crates for World War II. Oh, they came back. And then cool. after World War II, they didn't have a use for all these staves. They had. And so as the story goes, that's why they legislated new oak barrels. Interesting. And that's so, cool. Okay. And it might have been that it was like they just had too much wood, and then they were like, hey, let's make new barrels out of this subsidize the whiskey industry make it a law so i'll go off on a little tangent too you were talking about being able to control because you're you're controlling for the taste because you're right there for your your grains and how it affects your whiskey and for the longest time just general research has always been pushing towards yield 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 to the point now that research just down the road from us in st louis they're pushing research on re-identifying the robust qualities of certain grains because these high yield plants can't survive very well. Yep. So it, the research is literally flipped. They're growing fields of uh, heirloom varieties, harvesting them, doing the genetics and trying to figure out what's missing. Yeah. So I wonder if they like, Oh, all those farmers they were suing back in the nineties and apology. Yeah. There's one of them. So this is this is some nonprofit research that's going on with that right now. But yeah. Anyway. They should get just, some of that nonprofit money <laughs> back to the farmers they sued. So um, not to start a problem here. <laughs> yeah, I worked on both sides of this. So I, I just but I just thought that was really interesting that and you're talking about how much you're controlling for and like, yeah, they're they're trying to figure out how to put it back in now. Um Well, and I think that that's the thing, is like, you know, foresight, you know, it's like it's like it's like hindsight is always twenty twenty. That's yeah. like you always know what you should have done. <clears throat> and I think that's kind of like the entire agricultural industry right now. It's like everybody kind of knows what we should have been doing all along. Because when you start looking at soil mm-hmm. and you look at agriculture around the world, it's like we've gotten so heavy on the consumerism side mm-hmm. that we've depleted the natural resources. And, and quite honestly, it's like if you look at the consumption of goods 
you know, we're depleting the, the resources at such a high rate that, you know, our ecosystem can't reproduce. So, yeah. <laughs> I don't know where I was going with we, that. we all got off a little tangent here, but that's fine. This is this is fun because this all plays back into your business and how you're doing, how you're creating what you're creating. So just a little more into the poor. What are so we talked about the challenges of your creating your own, uh, growing your own communication. What what pieces you're you're giving in with kind of the logistics and the storage and the knowledge. So when it comes down to further you know, getting to the distilling and the mash builds and what you're creating now, what What's what are you doing differently to make this unique? I, 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 we were looking in your the warehouse, the ceiling room, yeah. and you, you even you make your own stills. Yeah, so we, we make all of our own stills, and it's kind of just based off you know a personal study of you know distilling and separation techniques. You know, it's something that really fascinates me. It's just how you know alcohol has a lower boiling point than water, and it's like how do you efficiently separate it my so my wife's a biochemical engineer i'm a you know agronomy botanist i love chemicals and so i'm a very detail-oriented person that loves you know art being creative and all this stuff but for me creating whiskey is a science it's a it's a expression of art but it's also but it's, it's a very specific science because you're creating a chemical and understanding so and I'll kind of back into the family knowledge and I'll kind of work forward for a second mm-hmm. is one of the things a lot of people ask me though, you know, what, or, you know, what is my position? What am I, you know, a lot of people throughout when you work with a lot of, especially small distilleries, it seems kind of like anybody that has money and starts a distillery immediately becomes a master distiller. It's never made sense to me, but you know, to each their own by position, I would be, kind of the head distiller but the way my family's always kind of viewed it is i'm just a steward of my family's lineage Mm -hmm. and knowledge for this generation and when i believe that i've reached perfection when i've finally perfected a barrel towards like i taste the barrel i'm like that is perfect then it's my time to have trained somebody else and i give the keys over and i'm Mm -hmm. done and so you know so i have five kids hopefully one of them they're all you know they all learn and they all come in and work with me but there's a lot of knowledge there that comes down. One of those pieces is that it's not my job to be creative. It's my job to follow tradition. So my job was breaking down. When my wife and I, we started going through all of our whiskey samples and everything, you know, everything that we have, we created chemical fingerprints for every one of our distillations. So I can tell you the exact chemical like makeup of each whiskey before it goes in barrel at every aging statement to know if that whiskey is staying true to the original whiskey that was produced. So we do that because anybody that studies biology knows that you lose taste buds. If you have a chemical imbalance, Mm -hmm. the flavors I taste today might be different than what I taste tomorrow. And so in order to reduce the peaks and valleys of taste, Mm So what else makes your whiskey unique, uniquely yours from everybody else's? Yeah, so I'd say one of the big things that we kind of, I'd say one of the big things we kind of hang our hat on and here when we pour some of the whiskey, we kind of try through it, is so we do a 48-day fermentation. How's that different? Most distilleries are two to three days. Okay. And it's just for efficiency's sake. 
but we have a tradition in our family as most distillers did prior to prohibition was that uh, you would harvest the grains, especially for farm distillers, you would harvest the grains end of October, start them fermenting, but you would not begin distilling until your barns started getting cold. Your warehouses started getting cold because you wouldn't waste the, the wood or the heat to heat them up um, while the weather was still good. And so you ended up with a much thicker, more viscous whiskey mm-hmm. because the long chain fatty acids had the ability to fully mature. And so that's one thing that's pretty unique about our brand. We didn't know that that was different until we started selling whiskey. And then we found out after the fact, comically on a podcast as well, mm-hmm. when the other person that was, we were talking to, they were like, and you do what? Explain this to me. Because for us, it was, we assumed everybody did the same way. So that was something that's a pretty unique piece of our whiskey. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So the longer chain fatty acids give it a more of a, a silkier, thicker palate? Correct. Okay. Yeah. All right. So the first one that we're going to pour here, so, this is our standard 100 proof. So this is a blend of different ages, the youngest being five and a half years old. And proof it down to 100 proof because that's kind of where my family always drink it. And so my family before... And the reason why we picked 100 proof was because where my family always proofed the whiskey, as they said, add water until it goes cloudy. So until it reaches, mm-hmm. and then add less. And so that's, a, that's the whole goal is you add enough water so it doesn't go cloudy. Mm-hmm. And that puts it right at that, like between 47% alcohol to 100 proof. And so we pegged it at 100, and we've just kind of stuck with 100. That's cool. So, All yeah. right. Let's try this out. So if you look at the viscosity, really big legs. Yeah. Wow. All right. It's nice. It's not it burn your nose hairs off like some. That's awesome. That's a nice even feel. I like that. Sweetness up front. Yeah, sweetness little, up front. A little, little bit of rye spice in the back. Yep. But it's not overbalanced. It's not burning. Just kind of gives you a nice good hug. Yeah. You're exactly on for that. That's so, great yeah. description. It's really good. One of the things that we kind of chase in the planners brand. So one of the flavor compounds that we always look for is like fig, dried fruit, fig Newton, and huh. cherry cola. It's like yeah, little cherry. notes of those. And a lot of people, you know, why do you chase that? And it's for me, it's because that's what I eat when I'm harvesting. It's when you what? That's what that's like my favorite snack when I'm harvesting. The only time I buy fig Newtons and cherry cola is when I'm out in the field harvesting during harvest season. Ah, okay. And so for me it's like barrels that are perfect you can taste a little bit of harvest magic in them ah. so yeah some some pattern memory built into this this is that's really cool i like what, what people make and why they make it it's just so neat it's always such a neat story so let me just kind of look at those legs i know wow geez that's moving nice and slow yeah they're very it's very very thick and wide whiskey i like it so so as we're talking about the pour, what does it what what is it that you've got a stellar product here, no doubt. The beautiful story behind it. How do you let everybody know about it? Well, so we've been for a long time that was a big question. But I would say that we've been tremendously blessed by our community and by you know, kind of like our local family that have just embraced us wholeheartedly and <clears throat> we're working on becoming better at social media 
mm-hmm. and are working better on telling the stories. But we, you know, and part of like what Nobleton stands for. So if you look at our, you know, if you go to our website and you read our, our slogans on our sign behind our bar, you know, clearly Nobleton's isn't my last name. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of people ask me a lot for a long time. They say, you know, what, why isn't it named, you know, Kane's Distillery? And I said, well, nine generations of family's name has changed multiple times. You know, it's not my distillery. It's multiple names. And my family has a tradition that when you get married, your best man gives you a toast. And it's a Scottish Irish tradition. And that toast is framed on my wall. And that's like my family creed. And the finishing line that was given to me by my brother was for the noble character of those we keep salute. Very nice. And so that's where the finishing line for Nobleton says, is that it's, you know, it's for the noble character of those we keep. It's the people that, you know, it's, yes, we make whiskey, but it's not really me. It, the only reason we're here is because people decided to support us. Mm-hmm. And we continue to grow that support by making great whiskey and inviting more people into our family. And so we, we kind of approach whiskey from that. We approach the entire company from that perspective. That's like, you know, the only reason we continue to be a business is because we continue to invite more people into our family. We continue to let them trust us to make good whiskey for them. And so I'd say like, that's been like how we get the word out is a a lot of word of mouth. And, And we're just, like overly blessed because of that, because it's nothing that I've done. I don't so have a secret. word of mouth, a little yeah. bit of social media yeah, and very little great um, story though. So, so that is, that's great. So what else do we have here as well? Speaking of poor, yeah, you just so, want to go on and. So this one is a very special one. So this one is, you know, for people who can read between the lines, this is legally as old as the distillery. These are, this was the first barrel that I ever distilled. This was made over open flame, distilled in very old stills that had been passed down for hundreds of years. And it was made over clay, uh, fire pit that held it. it. was clay, made from handmade clay bricks, came from the Ozarks in the 1820s. Wow. Clay um, bricks made? My it, family made in 1824. Wow, 1824, okay. Uh, that's what this is. No. This is a whiskey that I made. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very, very special barrel. Part of a, a, our grand open bottled this up um, for right. all our patrons. Yeah. Hmm. Sweet. A little bit of raisin on the back, graham cracker. But the reason why you get the proof on that's 121. Ah, that's where it is. But so that doesn't taste that, like yeah. 121 proof at all. That, that's no. I wasn't going to tell you ahead of time because, wow. If you tell people the proof, for us, one of the things we say is our hallmark. Are those long chain fatty acids? That's affecting a lot. It's thick. It's viscous. Mm-hmm. If you even drink drink something from us, like you know one of our vodkas, same thing. Okay, it's a very thick and viscous feel, and so those forty eight days mean make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, okay, yeah. this is great. Thank you. All right, so now we kind of move through with our harvest of poor journey. If somebody wants to start and sort of following your example of what you're doing right now, but they don't have the nine generations and the knowledge, but they do want maybe one day want to start their own distillery. What uh, advice do you have for them? So I'd say one of the biggest things is, you know, it's nice having a long story and a a lineage, but at the end of the day, it's like that lineage had to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. 
you know, like nine generations ago, you know, even going back to the 1500s, like that person in my family, the first steward was the first guy. Yeah. And so one of the big things is, you know, that we've even had to learn from the, from the onset is nine years ago, we started at a 275 square foot garden shed. <laughs> Just because we had lineage didn't mean that we didn't have to struggle a ton. And we still struggle a ton to this day. You know, don't bite off more than you can chew. Don't take on debt that you don't need to. You know, we've never taken on a dollar of debt. And that's and that's how we survived COVID. We didn't have debt. Okay. And so when I just had to turn the lights off more often and work overnight, and you know, to survive, we didn't have the bank calls. Mm-hmm. And so, I'd, you know, that's the advice I'd give anybody at any business is, you know, you know, set your goals, build up to those goals. Don't get ahead of yourself. You know, let let your supporters grow with you. Because, it, you know, it's a scary thing if you end up owing somebody a million bucks. Yeah. Trying to figure out how to make up twenty or $30,000 a month to pay them back. Because that's a lot of money. Yeah, it is. And so. Okay. All right. And do you have any kind of, right now, what is your, as far as maybe distribution or... Um, creating whiskey what's your biggest open challenge yes our biggest our, you know our biggest challenge is is just growth you know we're we're just moving into looking at more states for distribution we have a very very healthy and amazing following here locally you know i say that you know i would put st louis missouri whiskey drinkers against anybody's anywhere in the world you know some people talk about other states and how amazing it is there and, you know, all this stuff. And I sit there and I go, I would put the people here in St. Louis, in Missouri, the support they give. I'm like, I would put that against any state. Like, I just absolutely, you know, not being a true native. Mm-hmm. My wife's a native to the area. My family left. We, ha- we happen to own a portion of the farm. And my family left in the 1820s. But I'm not, my family's not been native here for a long time. But my, wife, my wife's family's been here forever. Okay. And and so, you know, I, I, but it's like that growth going beyond our borders mm-hmm. is a whole new approach. And we have got a lot of fans in other cities and other states now that travel. You know, this past weekend we had our grand opening and we had people flying in from Chicago, New York City, West Coast cities just for the grand opening. And mm-hmm. that was super amazing to see people. It's like, you know, they awesome. had our whiskey from friends and they were like, we're going to fly in for this. So it's still, but it's still that growth thing. It's like, you know, it's, and, and it's, and since we don't have the, you know, we, we, we will not source. We don't have that ability to grow beyond what we can produce. And so an age, you know, yeah. for us, it's all about that aging cycle. So we're, we're taking it in bite-sized chunks. Okay. That's great. So, and I mean, so you're really looking to scale up to this, get this out, get more nodes on. Okay. Yeah. And final kind of question I have, and so for some, this is tough, and for some, this is super easy. So with uh, Nobletons and outside of Nobletons, what is your favorite beverage? So inside of Nobletons, you know, I would say, you know, if I'm drinking an alcoholic beverage, it's whiskey. Yeah. I love my whiskey. But if it's in the summertime, I'm probably drinking gin and gin lemonades. Okay. Because we make good gin. <laughs> um, but it's more of a, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a good gin, but it's not quite. Everybody else's chat has a good one. But um, so, you know, it's like for the most part, it's whiskey if it's alcoholic. But if it's outside of the alcohol spectrum, mm-hmm. I love coffee. 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 
coffee. Coffee. Coffee. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> not having a voice does not Yes, help. yes. And All so right. I spend a lot of time. I love roasting beans. I, I only drink one cup of coffee a day. That's a very small cup. And so my wife always harasses me about the effort that I put into making that one cup of coffee. But I make my own, my, I make my own little contraptions for brewing coffee. Like, it's just a meticulous thing for me. And we have our own dairy cows on the farm. Okay. So I make my own special creams. And I separate different fat contents. And I, like, I, I, I think coffee is one of the, like, I think coffee is, like, one of the most amazing. It's, like, one of the humblest and also most extravagant drinks that anybody can consume. Because it comes from something that's, like, you know, this is, like, one of the most humble fruits. You know, and, and if you ever had a, a actual coffee cherry, yeah, like the cherries are just um, like fermented coffee cherries. Good stuff. Like I would, I would die on coffee on coffee cherry wine. Uh, <laughs> like that would be my last alcoholic beverage I'd have. But to me, just like the richness in coffee and like like understanding the proper like roasting techniques, and 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 I would say, you know, it's like. I can go on and on. You not only do you source everything, you only roast, roast your own coffee to the point of one cup per day, one roast. So, yeah, that's it's a little absurd. <laughs> um, it, it does speak to all of this we're sitting in, though. It really does. So, well, it's you know, it's like at my home, mm-hmm. we don't have internet. Yeah, we don't have TV. My wife and I, it's like we we joke that it's like we're the most boring people because we have our own like private book club. Mm-hmm. She reads her book. I read my book at night. Like, that's what we do. Like, the kids are in bed and we read a book together. Like, she's reading her book and I'm reading mine. And we're like sitting here and then we discuss them. And it's like, and, she, and she's just like, this is the weirdest thing that like nobody does it this way. But that's like why in the morning it's like, you know, I get up at four in the morning and I'm like, I don't have anything else to do. I'm not going to turn on the TV. I don't yeah. have. It's like, I grab my book and I sit down and roast my coffee. <laughs> On the front porch, I, okay. And then I make my coffee right there. I've settled that. I've gotten to the point where I pretty much settled on that pour over coffee is the greatest way to make coffee. Oh, Some yeah. people will disagree with me, but there's just something so natural where it's like, I could have been doing pour over coffee a thousand years ago. Yeah. And there's just something like I make a uh, pour over, which is a flash brew, which is a iced coffee for my wife every morning. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because my wife doesn't even drink coffee. Yeah. So, so you're talking like, so my wife's like, you go through all this effort just to make one little cup of coffee for yourself. But I'm like, I'm allowed to be able to go through all this effort because it's only one cup. Imagine if I had to make two cups. Oh, man. Um, (laughs) Yeah. All right. So do you have any events or promotions or anything coming up, coming up here for Nobletons? So at the moment. You know, we tell everybody keep an eye on our social medias because when we launch barrels, mm-hmm. um, we have we have barrel picks coming out in February that are you know you know our barrel picks sell out within about a day. Mm-hmm. So we tell everybody you know if you get an opportunity to get one, if you ever want it signed, swing out to the distillery. We'd love to sign it for you. If we happen to have a sample bottle at the distillery, I'm all about pouring those out, pulling them up, and let people try them before they have to open their own bottle. And then also because our grand opening was this past Saturday. Mm-hmm. We are now open Fridays and Saturdays to the public. We do tours, tastings, you know, just come hang out. You know, we, we have a very relaxed atmosphere where it's just come in, have a cocktail, hang out, read a book. We don't have TVs in our tasting room, so it's pretty quiet. 
you know, depending on the day, it might be Johnny Cash or whatever other music I got going on. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Just looking around here, it's really a great place, really unique. Like you brought everything, you know, home from where you were to, to here and really made it uniquely yours again. Yeah. 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 That's what we were going for. You know, we wanted to have a place where people really feel like they could get home mm-hmm. and experience our whiskeys the way that we experience them. Um, you know, and it's just something that's special to us. You know, we wanted to create a unique experience that's they're not <clears throat> surrounded by technology and surrounded by all this stuff. It's like, take a sec- second, come in, sit down, enjoy a cocktail, read a book, some of the stories, and share your own. Yeah. Well, Demetrius, I'd like again, thank you a ton for your time. This has been really great learning all about the history of Nobletons, how it came into be. And again, guys, come on out here every Friday and Saturday. Brand new place. Looks beautiful. Try out some of this stellar whiskey. I had some. It's, it's wonderful, you know, and come out and enjoy it. Now you know a lot more about it, about this nice long chain fatty chain long chain fatty acids. I should know this by now. And and just, you know, now you understand a bit more about it, you have more to appreciate about it. So again, Demetrius, really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you for listening to Harvest to Pour, the business of beverages with Matthew Shep. Check the show notes for our guest contact information and connect with Matthew Shep on LinkedIn today.